Well, so are y'all, y'all are in separate places. Is that right? No, we're in the same house, isolated from each other. I see. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So Good. I'm in. I'm in his downstairs closet, and he's in his upstairs closet. <laughs> <laughs> see, it's just like the 1950s. We're all going back into the closet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that in the back of my head that there was a joke in there somewhere, and you found it. Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I am Anson Mount. And today's guest is Jack Hitt. I kind of forgotten you hadn't actually met him before. I sort of... No, but it's strangely... it feels like I, I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of those writers, journalists that just writes from such a a personal place, and also he's southern and he went to Swanee, so it seems like I would have met him before right. now. Right, he's he's in our social circle, and in my case, he's the uncle to one of my good friends. So I've had the pleasure of dining out with Jack Hitt, and he is a one of a kind raconteur. There's not many raconteurs left in the world, I feel like, but he's one of them. He's got the gift of gab. He's a fantastic writer. He's written for Harper's, New York Times Magazine, This American Life, Outside Magazine, Rolling Stone, Wired. He's won a Peabody Award for his own podcast, Uncivil, that he co-hosted about sort of a, a, a looking back upon uh, myths that we have, especially Southerners have, about the Civil War. And that's a fantastic podcast. Yeah. So. I, I first came across him, actually, um, in a, a New York Times article he did quite a while ago uh, about the small island country of Nauru <laughs> and how this country has inadvertently had its hand in uh, bankrupting the Russian economy, uh, <laughs> North Korean defectors, and... Uh, 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 terrorism and uh, also a, a, a now uh, defunct um, musical flop uh, called <laughs> called Leonardo, uh, a portrait of love. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a musical about Leonardo da Vinci, and somehow this island got involved in that. And I don't want to. I don't want to ruin how. Um, in fact, he he did an interview about this um in this american life i believe it's episode 253 if i'm not mistaken called the middle of nowhere uh and you know what we'll we'll post a link to that uh in the show notes of this uh episode so that if you want to listen to what i'm talking about you can go there and do that there's so much to recommend uh, by jack i almost feel like people should just skip our podcast and just go to the <laughs> links and just you know uh, and go straight to the get it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Well, this is straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah. But uh, while you go look out that episode, also be on the lookout for Fiasco. Oh yeah, on This American Life, which is if you haven't heard it yet, might be the funniest twenty thirty minutes that you'll ever spend listening to anything. It's the best theater story I've ever heard in my life, and it took place on the main stage at Sewanee. Mm-hmm. I was not involved in this production. <laughs> I have to say, it was well before my time. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely worth a listen. We'll we'll post links yeah. to both of those. Yeah, and and pertinent more to this particular podcast, he is married to Lisa Sanders, Doctor Lisa Sanders, who writes mystery diagnosis for the New York Times, and they just turned that into a show on Netflix. So uh, Jack always comes at stories, you know, like you said, from a personal angle, uh, but also just 
he always just comes at it from a different angle than most other writers. Like he always looks what part of the story is being ignored, and that's always what gets his his interest. Yeah, he he has a talent of finding humor in the seemingly mundane, and mm-hmm. then finding the pathos at the center of that humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know why not? I'll go ahead and tell this story. Um, someone asked him. Uh, this is in a conversation I was having with him. Someone asked him about how he got started in as a journalist. And I forgot which paper he was writing for, probably somewhere in Charleston, I think, when he first started. And a lot of young reporters wanted, you know, the political scandal. And they wanted scandal. They wanted outrage. They wanted the big, hot, red-hot stuff. He's never been interested in that. He's interested in the human story. And so he would be he would be assigned the personal pieces or whatever, and so they told him to go out and uh, interview this woman who had just turned a hundred or hundred and one or something. It just it was just going to be kind of a fluff piece about Charleston's oldest resident just turned one hundred and two or something. I don't remember the age exactly. And so he was like, okay, right, that's what I signed up for. Human interest stories. Here I go. So he goes, and you know, at first it's. You know, he's not getting much out of it, but he's a good reporter. He's a good journalist. He knows how to keep talking and keep people talking until something comes up. And finally she says, oh, so you're a writer. He says, yeah. And she says, I'm a writer too. Oh, yeah? What have you written? Oh, I've just been working on this manuscript, you know, for a while now. Oh, how long? Since I was about 15, 16. (laughs) Oh, yeah? (laughs) Would you like to see it? Oh yeah, <laughs> and they go to some like I don't. It's bigger than a walk-in closet. It's more like a, a storage space or a whole other bedroom. I don't know, and it's just filled with thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. Wow, of an ongoing story that she's just been adding to her entire life for for getting close to like ninety, eighty-five years. <laughs> And and he, anyway, Jack told that story to uh, some people at the table that was that were interested in going into journalism. And as a reminder, if the story is boring, it's probably your fault. Like there's something interesting everywhere. You just have to rotate it around until you find that angle. And he always does. And that's why we had him on the show. And we're very lucky to have him uh, to sort of look through the crystal ball and prognosticate a little bit on what we think a post-coronavirus world might look like. Yeah. No crisis happens and life goes back to normal. Like if you just, I mean, I've lived through a number of these different kinds of crises in America. And, you know, if you look at New Orleans after Katrina, it didn't go back to being New Orleans pre-Katrina. If you look at America post 9-11, we did not go back to America pre 9-11. You just, you absorb certain changes and you live with them. So for instance, after 9-11, we all got accustomed to not only these, you know, insane um, body invasions at the airports, but, you know, we're now accustomed to strangers touching our genitals with the backs of their hands in a public space. That's something we have all just said, well, okay, yeah, that's fine. Or, you know, this whole stop and frisk thing, 
That all came after 9-11. Imagine that. The, the country that invented civil liberties has decided that the police can just stop anybody anytime they want to on the street and, and feel them up. Or people in, I mean, cops in parks now can just stop you and say, I want to look through your bag. And Americans are like, well, okay, that's fine. Um, we just adjusted to that. And so really, I, I mean, the question I want to ask is like, what are we going to adjust to after this? Right? What, I mean, and some things I think are like, you know, like st stuff of, of business seminars, like how many people are working from home now? And after this is over in whatever form, will find themselves um, happy to still work at home and their managers will want them to work at home. I mean, what percent? So I saw that <clears throat> I saw that one one study showed that about one in five companies has, has says that it will definitely keep some of its workforce at home after this is over, right? And I, I don't know what those numbers turn into, but if it's if it's a if it's five fifteen percent of the workforce decides not to commute, that has huge ripple effects down the road, right? In terms of you know commuting. Go, you know, oil consumption, you know, all that. Um, and I, I wonder if it's like, you know, there's a there's a four-day work week movement that came out of New Zealand that's been kind of sweeping a lot of these businesses. And I, I wonder if this is going to just like, you know, speed up the process of figuring out like, how do you work at home and continue with some kind of, you know, productive, you know, work? Um but without feeling like the, the, the company is getting cheated. I think the reason most people showed up at work is that employers were just nervous that you weren't actually working, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, I will say as a freelancer, um, that was always the scam. I never let editors know just how quickly I could actually put together an article or a piece because I didn't want them to know. I wanted them to think it took months. Rather than days, you know, that was, uh, <laughs> that was well, the cat's out of the bag now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, what you said about, um, about working from home and, and, and businesses after this event also probably wanting to save a lot of money on renting entire buildings that, uh, combined with, I think, a newfound nervousness about being close to one another could lead to a an emptying out of the cities to a degree, um, a population decline in larger urban areas, and uh, um, you know uh, people yeah. expanding out into suburbs. And I just wonder what uh, cities, particularly New York, is going to look like after this. Well, you wonder, like, is so? I mean, what you're referring to is a kind of coronavirus flight. Right. Yeah. Well, instead yeah. of white flight, it will be a kind of middle class flight because, right. I mean, and this is sort of what you know, as I understand it, what happened, you know, and even in the bubonic plague, right? The people who can't escape the disease, the people who have to work, the people, you know, you're already getting some of these news stories of of companies refusing to pay uh, delivery people hazard pay or bonus pay, um, you know, people who have to have to do dangerous things. Um, in order to get paid, they're stuck in these cities. I mean, some people can, you know, afford to leave. And you're right. I mean, maybe, again, you know, it doesn't have to be everybody. If even if it's five to ten percent of, of you know, of a metropolitan area moves out to the suburbs, that's a massive, 
massive shift in that's going to have huge ripple effects down the road, right? But I also just think, like, on a personal basis, like, in the cities, like, how we greet each other. I, I mean, I saw this one study a couple of days ago that apparently one of the reasons why the 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 infection rate in Japan seems to be a lot lower than other countries is because they bow. Ah, uh. The Chinese shake yeah. hands, the Koreans shake hands, but the Japanese bow. So they have they have a cultural tradition of physical distancing. And you know, you have to wonder like what's going to happen to the handshake? I mean, who would you shake someone's hand now on the street if I introduced you to no. them? You would not. No. You would not. And the question is, would you let's say in July the numbers are down. Are you going to are you going to shake someone's hand? I'm not sure we will. I mean, I think the handshake may be one of the victims of this uh, virus. I mean, we don't, you know, like I said, we don't know. But, I mean, I will be very cautious to shake someone's hand in the future if I don't know them. And even if I do know them, right? I mean, mm -hmm. now, we now we now see this these things differently than we used to, right? We now understand in this really profound way that, these hands touch things, and then we touch our faces, and that's how we get sick. We kind of always knew that, but this has really driven that idea home in a way that I think will have profound changes in the way we personally move through space now, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm married to a doctor, and, you know, she told me years ago the, this famous story in medicine about this guy named Ignatz Simmelweis. Yes, that is, in fact, his name. <laughs> He, and he was the manager of a hospital. And uh, he noticed that patients were getting sick if they were sort of in line down the way from when, when doctors were going from one ward to the next. And he suspected, and this is, you know, when germ theory was quite early uh, or, you know, young, um, that the doctors were passing the diseases down the wards. And so he insisted that after you visited each patient, you had to go in and scrub your hands hard with, I think, lye or something. And doctors hated this rule, right? It was a complete change in their, in their sort of like their sense of self-esteem. You know, having a bloody garment was like a football player having, you know, grass stains all over his uniform. It proved that you, <laughs> you did the work. You know, you were the guy, okay? And, and doctors did not want this regime, but Simmelweis insisted upon it. And after he enforced this hand-washing regime, you know, infections plummeted in the hospital. Eventually, he got fired, by the way, and they went back to their old ways, and infections went back up. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, it took a while, but after, nowadays, of course, no doctor doesn't scrub in to any room, Right when they're handling patients. And I think in some ways, as a culture, we are learning the, the, the real benefits of scrubbing in. And mm -hmm. as a culture, we are, we are teaching ourselves now how to wash our hands and how not to touch our face and maybe how not to shake hands anymore. And I, you know, I don't know, you know where all that plays out, I don't know. But I, I suspect, I mean, maybe we start bowing. Or maybe we just do that like six foot dance that everybody does at the dog park around here. Hey, you know, everybody stands there uh, about six <laughs> feet away and kind of nods and makes a little joke about how we can't, you know, 
chest bump or hug or handshake or, you know, put a hand on your shoulder. Um, we now have this new kind of six foot greeting um, anthropology that's kind of developing in front of our eyes, right? It's sort of like, you know, remember how we all had to get used to email, like punctuation and grammar and new protocols for s suggesting irony in, in emails. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, we had to invent all that because we, we didn't really have any of that language. And now we're, I think we're inventing new forms of public greeting. Do you um, think um do you think that maybe touching your face will start to become socially unacceptable sort of like picking your nose? Oh yeah, right. <laughs> right. And and it should have been. I mean, you know, it's not like we didn't know this. I mean, typhoid Mary, right? I mean, the whole story is that everyone was drinking from the same fountain and putting their lips on the on the metal, right? And that's how they were getting the disease. Um I mean, now we're all, yeah, we're, we're now being schooled in sort of epidemiology, right? We're being schooled in like how diseases pass. Hey, I know one thing that I, that I just thought about uh, this morning. It was like, I wonder what effect next year all of this reculturation of, <clears throat> of hands and faces will, I wonder how it will affect like just the common cold or uh, the flu. Right, I, I'll bet a lot of those diseases are going to really decline now because we're all washing our hands, wearing gloves, not touching our faces, being suspicious of doorknobs. Right? I mean, or gas pumps. I see that no one, no one in my neighborhood pumps their gas with their bare hand anymore. Right? Because that's a, I mean, that's the one of the most common places that you can pick up a the virus. So, I mean. So it may be that, you know, if the whole nation, the whole world learns to rub their, you know, wash their hands, not touch their faces, then maybe there'll be a, a general decline in all kinds of these diseases that, you know, transmit in the same way that coronavirus does. And I think some of the, um, uh, what you said about the, the doctors, you know, who first came up with you know, pre-germ theory, scrubbing in, and then getting fired, and then watching infections go back up again, Knowing our species, we'll probably have to run that experiment too. We'll probably oh sure, uh, we'll see it go down, and they'll say, "See, it's over." And then we'll run the experiment again and watch it go back up. And then we we'll go, "Okay, now I'm convinced." <laughs> and then go back to yeah. Never, never underestimate the stupidity of the human race. It's really, it's a, that's a, that's yeah, that's a loser's bet. You know, I always like to remind people. You know, mm -hmm. Da Vinci had the bicycle in his notebooks. And then we didn't really invent one for 300 more years because we're idiots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was right there in front of us. You know. Hey, I've got, I've got one. I think physical money is yeah. done. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, we that's were already our, yeah. on our way there. I mean, it got to right. the point in just the past couple of years, it got to the point where I could go a week without going and getting cash because everybody's on credit cards. Now and now you have credit cards that are touchless, mm -hmm. so you know. Right. And, and, and money is one of the biggest carriers of germs out there because it's constantly passing from hand to hand. I think that this is going to usher physical money's uh, demise. Oh yeah, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, they're already. I mean, I there there are shops here, and uh, I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, and there are shops here that do not take money at all. Oh wow! Now I right. thought I thought that was yeah I thought that was just a, a you know a kind of 
local scheme to keep the poor out of, you know, kind of tonier places, but maybe not. Um, I mean, I avoided them cause I thought that was, it was kind of rude, but, um, but, but I think you're right. I mean, now that, now that, you know, paper currency and coins especially, right. Are just, um, virus magnets. So why would you carry them around in your pocket? Yeah, that's definitely one. That's another one. But I wonder like, what all, what all is going to change in terms of like, I mean, think of the other bigger ways that we congregate, like restaurants, right? Did you see that David Chang said <clears throat> the other day, he told the New York Times that, and this is a quote, without government intervention, there will be no service industry. So what he's saying is, is that, you know, all of these businesses with these like, you know, tiny profit margins, this kind of blow means they're finished unless somebody steps in and pays their workers and underwrites their, you know, their companies until such time as they can get back up and running again. But, you know, the question is like, will they ever get back up and running again? I mean, I don't know where, where you are, but there's a couple of business, there's a couple of restaurants here that have moved very quickly and retooled very uh, aggressively into takeout, right? And some of these are friends of mine and they're doing, you know, they're doing a 10th of the business that they used to do. Um, so they've had to lay off most of their workers, <clears throat> but the comp, but the restaurant is staying in business basically by just cooking food and, you know, having people drive by and pick up the bag at the window. Um, I mean, I, you know, where does that go? I, I mean, will, will we, tr will we create a new kind of restaurant where everybody sits six to eight feet apart? Will we have just more outdoor restaurants? Maybe maybe we just all become like, you know, Parisian cafes where we're all out on the sidewalk um, in the future. Or I'll tell you one that's happening here. Um, a friend of mine who has one of these uh, restaurants has this enormous parking lot and is now um, investigating the idea of, of turning that into a, a kind of makeshift or sort of pop-up drive-in movie theater. Um, and his restaurant would be the concession stand. So you wouldn't get popcorn and, uh, and Twizzlers, but, you know, maybe a, a much better meal. So, you know, maybe that'll turn out to be better. And I understand now that the, the remaining drive-in movie theaters in the country are sold out. <laughs> like, they're that, still see, operating. That, that's yeah. great. I would love well, so to many see ways, the resurgence. In so many ways, we've, uh, this is, it sounds like we're going back to the 1950s. We've got drive-in movies again. People are walking outside more and saying hi to their neighbors before TV and air conditioning made everyone go back inside. I'd, but I'd already, I was already starting to see a return of the 50s, but, I'm, but the <laughs> return of the drive-in movie theater is just, that's more 50s than I was anticipating. Well, and don't forget el elbow gloves. Those are coming back too, you know. I mean, people are wearing gloves, but now they're thinking, well, I think I'll wear nice gloves. So that's also 1950s. Maybe the finger bowl will make a, have a renaissance. <laughs> the finger bowl. <laughs> You're talking about eyeing things suspiciously, eyeing doorknobs suspiciously, uh, eyeing uh, each other suspiciously, frankly. I think indoor spaces, people are becoming, essentially, I think there's going to be, a, the future will be a more claustrophobic uh, culture. And I know that in Wuhan, China, where they've started to uh, try to get back, try to get back to normal, no one wants to go. People still need to shop, but they don't want to go into a shop. So everyone is moving their, uh, you know, cash register and their items out onto the sidewalk, so people can mm -hmm. still buy. But no one wants to go into a room. I feel like 
there's a sense of being trapped, trapped with other people, trapped with the germs. And I think everything that we're saying about drive-ins, uh, outside markets, I think, I think the indoor is going to go outdoors. Yeah, and that's another thing, though, is that but, – but the rules are different for the cities. And in what you're talking about in terms of more spacing at restaurants, that is fundamentally impossible in New York City because of the price of the real estate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they say one out of every 10 Americans works in the food service industry. I mean, that's – when you think about that, uh, the economic implications of that going away are astounding. Yeah, but Anson, let me let me just throw something back at you. So, um, uh, you know, as someone who lived in New York City for you know decades and then moved out, I mean, one of the things that I saw was that all these little mom and pop shops that could afford, like, you know, my local butcher was this guy named Oppenheimer on Ninety Eighth and Broadway, and he got priced out, right? I mean, all these people got priced out, and and basically the the the, the Broadway turned into a bunch of CVS and Gaps and you know banks. Because they were the only businesses that could afford the rents. But now, I mean, a lot of these businesses are going to empty out. And all those rents are going to plummet, right? Um, and so, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm probably. Sorry. I am watching this cat torment <laughs> Brandon on the video. <laughs> I was, you can edit I was this trying out, to... but that was pretty funny. That was pretty. Sorry, I was trying. I was trying to I pretend that wasn't happening. <laughs> the look on your face, the agony. I was like, "What am I saying that is causing Brandon such distress? Is it the commercial rents plummeting? Is he that unhappy about that?" And then all of a sudden, this cat appears behind his head with the claws digging into his shoulders. <laughs> Sorry, that was a priceless. I, it's not. It doesn't rise to the level of my chair collapsing out from under me, but it's close. <laughs> Uh, Life during wartime, brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's in your. You know what? I I, I hear your your case, um, but then that that also makes me think. And we we spoke about this earlier. I, it it feels like New York may be headed back to what it looked like in the nineteen seventies. Well, yeah, we're talking about you know, Ford to New York, drop dead, right? No, no, that that's like no funding, no no money for anything. Um, and the city desperately trying to provide basic services. Uh, at least that's that's the way it's you know kind of been passed down as lore. But I wonder. I mean, yes, people will move out, and businesses will. All these high rent storefronts on the ground levels of those huge apartment buildings, they're not going to get the the twenty thousand dollar a month fees anymore. No one will be able to pay that, and maybe even CVS. And if that happens, then you're going to have this kind of kind of wild west of uh, reinventing the ground floor storefronts uh, on Broadway and, and, and on the major drags in, this, in the cities, right? Um, because all those little restaurants that, you know, that David Chang is, is you know, predicting might go under, okay, so all of those clear out. Then what happens to those buildings? What happens to those places? Um, you know, uh, that's that's a blank slate at this point. This whole conversation has made me very aware of how our economy seems to be this surprisingly rickety bicycle that just depends on constant forward momentum and acceleration to stay upright. And it was 
pretty easy to knock it over. And I'm, I'm convinced, I mean, of course, it'll get back up on its two wheels again and keep moving, but in what direction? And uh, I can't, you know, we're, in, we're a resourceful species. I, I will somehow reinvent things. But yeah, it's going to be a down, you know, basement level foundation reinvention of how, of how business models work. And I don't, I have no idea what the uh, consequences of that are. That's everything. Agreed. I mean, that's, that's the real blank slate is that small businesses, you know, had these minor profit lines margins to begin with. Um, and will probably, many of them will fail or just go out of business. And then you're going to have all this empty space. Or, I mean, think about all the places that used to go where you were really crammed in. Like, will nightclubs be able um, to survive the coronavirus? Will Broadway? Will, you know, theater? Will movie theaters? All of those places, it strikes me, I don't know. I mean, m many people will feel emboldened to come back, especially if we create a vaccine and, you know, we feel like we get over it. But, you know, a lot of people are going to be, there's a kind of PTSD here that, that will be slow to recover, right? A lot of people just... I'm not going into crowded public places anymore, right? They won't take the bus. They won't go to the, the movie theater at all. Um, and what, whatever percentage that is, it almost doesn't matter. If it's, if it's, if it's significant enough, 10 to 15%, that will knock an, a whole series of businesses out of, out, of, you know, out of operation. And then we'll just have these empty buildings. And then what will happen to commercial rents at that point, right? It'll be... It'll be a buyer's game. And there are not enough CVSs in the world to soak up all those empty businesses. Did y'all, I just want to add one, one final thought here, or just throw out one thing. Did y'all see that John Prine died? Yes. Yeah. Um, and he died of, of coronavirus complications. Um, and uh, anyway, he was such a, I mean, yeah. I'm, I know that, you know, all of us, have roots in the South. And so, um, uh, somehow I feel like, I mean, John Prine has been somebody I've, I've listened to since I was in high school. Um, but, uh, you know, you might, probably the song that most people are most famous for is, uh, hello in there. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and if you, if you listen to that song, um, it really, it describes, it, it describes a world for old people, right? This kind of social isolation for old people, um, but the lyrics actually describe kind of the world we're all living in now, you know, and it's, it's strange that of all, mm -hmm. all the singers to die, it, Prine would die with that song, which I, I feel like is slowly becoming our national anthem. Um, but because we, we, you know, that, that one aspect of this disease, that social isolation of making us all just pull away from each other, all while we're trying to collaborate with each other. It is the craziest paradox of this disease that mm -hmm. the only way we can defeat it is by pulling together and staying apart at the same time. Thoughts? Yes. <laughs> no. That's no, I, no, you said that so perfectly. I, 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 can't, I would mess it up by trying to add to it. I think this uh, demands that Brandon is going to have to do a cover of that song for our outro. <laughs> I was just writing down. I just wrote. How did you know? I wrote down. Hello, and there? Question mark. 
days just grow stronger in old rivers grow wilder every day old people just grow lonesome waiting for someone to say hello in there hello As if that song were not heartbreaking enough, I listened to an interview with John Prine that played a couple of days after he died, and he talked about the origins of that song. John Prine sort of famously uh, worked for the post office in Nashville and delivered mail for many, many, many years. And it was one of his first songs that he wrote, and while he was still doing his mail route, and he talked about going up to houses with very old people in them that lived by themselves. And he would see you know, the blinds part a little bit and he would see an old person peeking out. And he realized that he was probably the only visitor they had. You know, once a day or once every couple of days, maybe once a week. The only person who ever came to their door was the mailman, it was him. And then one day he would drop off the mail and there would be no one peeking through the blinds and the mail from yesterday was still there. And the mail would start to pile up and then they would have to call the police, the fire department, whatever rescue service. So the title of the song comes from him listening to concerned health workers or police knocking on the door of these elderly people's homes saying, hello in there. Hello. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Special thanks for this episode goes to Jack Hitt for spending some time to talk to us from his Jesuit wine cellar bunker and uh, prognosticate with us. We really appreciate it, Jack. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Myberg and performed by Brandon Edgens. And the John Prine cover you just heard was obviously written by John Prine 
and performed, although someone would argue if, if I really did, unfortunately, <laughs> by me, Brandon Edgens. Please take care of yourself and each other, and we'll all get through this. Have a good week.